Thank you, Gary. His love never changes, and we're going to be talking about that uh, in depth this morning. Uh, well, good morning, church. How's everybody? Beautiful day out there, isn't it? Tomorrow is the first day of fall. How many of you were aware of that? When it's 95 degrees, sometimes we miss that. Uh, but uh, that means today is a milestone day for tapestry. The first sweater vest of the season. Yeah. We'll keep them coming. Don't you worry. I didn't care if it was 100 degrees, man. I was wearing my sweater vest. It's just been sitting in my closet just waiting to be pulled out. I'm glad you guys are here today. We're going to continue in our Do Good series as we trek through the book of Titus together. I've been so encouraged uh, just this morning, probably... Three or four people approached me um, before church just to to say how much they're getting out of uh, this journey together through Titus. Between what we're doing here on Sunday mornings, um, the the group that meets downstairs at 9.30, the, the Bethunes group, and then the groups that are meeting in homes, just focused literally for seven weeks on these three chapters in this small letter from the Apostle Paul to his protege, Titus. So I've been encouraged, and I'm just glad that uh, um, God is teaching you uh, through this book. Um, last week, Paul's instructions uh, to Titus, if you'll remember, focused on the priority of establishing good what in these churches? Leaders. Good leadership in these churches on the island of Crete. Because at this point, the church is there uh, some 30-some-odd years after the resurrection of Jesus and the founding of these churches after Pentecost. Uh, they had become indistinguishable from the world around them. In other words, they were being influenced more by the culture of the Cretans than they were by the character of Christ. Their behavior uh, was undermining what they said they believed. And false teachers were seizing that opportunity to lead these small house churches on the island further and further astray. So Paul, after the book opens up, he established his authority as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And then he establishes the authority of the message that Christ had entrusted to him, the gospel, after he opens up with that, he tells Titus, he said, man, you're going to have to clean house in these churches and you're going to need to start at the top. Everything rises or falls on leadership. And Paul says, you're going to have to find some new leaders in these churches, Titus, good leaders. And he tells him what to look for in those leaders, concluding in verse 9 of chapter 1 with Titus with these words. He said, these leaders that you're looking for, Titus, they must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught. The gospel, the pure gospel, as it has been taught so that they can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute, strong word, those who oppose it. Sound doctrine. So that trustworthy message is the gospel. It's the good news of Jesus' finished, finished work on the cross for the forgiveness of our sin 
and the new life that we're offered in Him. That's the gospel. Paul tells Titus, if you're going to straighten out this mess in these churches, you're going to need leaders who understand and embrace the gospel of God's grace. They need to be willing and they need to be able to stand without compromise on the essential elements of the Christian faith. And they need to oppose those who teach otherwise. That word refute in the Greek here, it literally means to expose or to bring to light. So Paul is calling Titus to expose the false teachers in these these churches and to shine the light of truth on what they're teaching. And then he says to reprimand them. That's part of what that word rebuke means there. To reprimand them. So these are strong words that the Apostle Paul is calling young Titus to do in these churches. His job was to clean house, <laughs> to restore right doctrine. It's a tall order for a young pastor. It's a tall order for any pastor. But false teachers had gotten a foothold in Crete, and they were leading the churches astray. Not so different than what we often See today, Paul concludes chapter one with these words, speaking of these false teachers in the churches. He says they claim to know God, but by their actions, they deny him. Their their behaviors not matching up with what they say they believe. He says they're detestable, they're disobedient and they're unfit for doing anything good. From those who took the grace of God for granted in Crete to those who failed to recognize it at all, the pendulum of false teaching was swinging in these churches from one extreme to the other. Paul goes on to say in Titus chapter 1 verses 10 and 11, he says, For there are many rebellious people, Mere talkers and deceivers, especially those in the circumcision group. So he he names one of these groups and he calls them out. He says they must be silenced because they're ruining whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach. And that for the sake of what? Dishonest gain. They're trying to make a buck in the church. Fortunately, we never see that anymore. So Paul identifies at least one group of these false teachers. And he labels them as the circumcision group. They're related to, but, but as, as the research that I've done, they are not the same group known as the Judaizers. Uh, that, that he is coming strongly against in Galatia that we read about. Where he says, you know, who is it that's bewitched you? They're related to the Judaizers, these false teachers that teach the law, but they are sort of a subset of that group. But these teachers, the circumcision group, did not recognize Jesus' fulfillment of the Jewish law. And they demanded that the law be followed by all Gentile believers. 
So those who were not Jews, remember the Apostle Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles, so he was charged with carrying the gospel to the entire world, the non-Jewish world. And so these teachers were infiltrating the church and saying, if you're going to be a Christian, you've got to follow all these rules. You've got to follow all of the law in the Torah, in the Old Testament, including the right of circumcision. The inference here that Paul is making is that these teachers were then charging a fee to circumcise Gentiles in the church for the sake of dishonest gain. Can you imagine how convincing their teaching must have been to get grown men to pay them for that? Sometimes we don't think fully through what's going on here. Paul tells Titus, Man, you've got to put a stop to this. It's poisoning entire families as this teaching is being passed from one generation to the next. False teaching not only affects those who are receiving it at the time, false teaching lives on. And it can affect generations and generations as it is passed down through families. And so, so Paul tells Titus, he says, man, you've got to silence these folks. They're ruining Whole households. That word silence there in the Greek, it literally means, literally means to shut their mouths. And so Paul is pushing Titus into a fight. He's pushing Titus into a conflict that is unavoidable in these churches. But it's a good fight. And it's a good conflict. Because ultimately, it raises truth to the highest level. Paul's warning to the church in Crete is essentially this. And this is what he's sharing with Titus. Beware the leveraging of God's favor to manipulate your behavior. Are you with me? Beware the leveraging. Beware people who use God's favor and blessing to try to get you to do something, to manipulate your behavior. And that warning is just as relevant today, if not more so, than it was in the first century. Jesus, if you'll remember in the Gospels, reserved his harshest criticism for these kinds of folks who wanted to leverage God's favor and blessing to manipulate other people's behavior. They were the teachers of the law. And Jesus said this in Luke chapter 20. He said, beware the teachers of the law, the Pharisees. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. Such men will be punished most severely. Those are the words of Jesus. And throughout history, people have done the craziest things when false teachers used God's favor to manipulate their behavior. It's a powerful tool in the wrong hands. In other words, if you do this or if you do that, God will love you. God will accept you. God will forgive you if you do this. He won't forgive you if you don't. 
You can get God's blessing, but you've got to give this to God in order to get that blessing. And if you don't do this or that or whatever those teachers tell you you've got to do, always for dishonest gain, they tell you that God will reject you and you will not find favor with God. It is pervasive and always has been pervasive since the church began. It's a powerful way to exercise control over people using guilt and shame. Misled churches have done it for centuries. The problem is God doesn't operate that way. That's not who God is. It plays on our performance mentality that in order to get ahead, we've always got to do good, that we've always got to do the right thing. We've always got to perform. That's not the trustworthy message of the gospel. That's not the message of the cross. Jesus has followed and fulfilled God's law entirely on our behalf. He lived a perfect life so that he could die a perfect death. He met God's standard for us. He measured up for you. He measured up to all of God's expectations for me and for you. Man, if we could just get that through our heads and hold on to it and walk consistently in that reality. That's where freedom is found. That's where peace is found. When we quit trying to earn our way into God's good graces and we surrender ourselves fully Christ and what He's already done on our behalf. He's met God's standard for us. He's given His own life to forgive us and demonstrated God's love by dying for us. We don't have to perform well, (laughs) thank goodness, to earn God's approval. In other words, it's not up to you. It's not up to you. If it were up to you or if it were up to me, Jesus would have never had to come. God would have taken that whole, you know, send my son to die card off the table if there was another way. But we can't do it. Only he can do it on our behalf. Nothing changes his love for us. No matter how much we do or, or how much we don't do, God wants us to do good. He wants us to do well, but He loves us unconditionally. I'll tell you what, I was, uh, I was watching uh, ESPN uh, yesterday morning, and I, mean, I saw the perfect example uh, of this. Um, it was a piece done on the Arkansas State head football coach, Blake Anderson. How many of you are familiar with that story and have followed that story? Um, the, the Arkansas State head coach, uh, his wife, Wendy, um, passed away of cancer just a, a few weeks back, and um, and he had coached right up, literally took a leave of absence the, uh, the morning of the day that she passed away. He coached right up to that to that day, trying to balance uh, all of that, and he took a leave of absence. Wendy passed away uh, and lost her her battle with cancer that night, and uh, and then. 
prior to the next game that they would play, which would be the first game after their coach's wife had died, uh, he was on a leave of absence. And uh, Blake comes into their team meeting room, like the, I think it's the day before the game, something like that. Um, again, his wife had just passed away, and he was sensitive to the fact that the team he knew was feeling pressure to win this game for Wendy and to win this game for him. Listen to what he says in this video. I found this on my iPhone on the TV, so, you know, just work with me here. But uh, listen to what he says to the team. All right, before we get to film, I think I got to get something off my chest. I want to make sure that we're all on the same page. I do not want you to leave the pressure of having to win a game for my wife or for me. You could not win enough games to make me love you anymore. You can, you can lose every game this season, and I would still love you just as much, and so would she. This is not about wins and losses. Mm. Mm. This is not about wins and losses. You can't win enough to earn God's favor. You can't lose enough to lose God's favor. That's God's message to us in Christ. I thought that was so beautiful to convey that to His players so that they would know, regardless of how they performed on the field that next day, that His love for them would never change. Whether they did great or whether they did poorly, nothing could change how much he loved him. And that's God's message echoing to each of us in Christ. It's not about wins and losses. But we approach life like that, don't we? God loves me more when I win. God loves me more when, when I do what I think He wants me to do today. Man, His love for us never, ever changes. Our performance does not affect His love for us. He wants us to play well. <laughs> he wants us to do good. But it doesn't change how He feels about us. I say that to say this. Again, beware the leveraging of God's favor to manipulate your behavior. It's everywhere in Christian churches and in Christian culture some of it is blatant legalism some of it is just insidious and it's hidden well and yet it is manipulating the body of christ the most glaring example of this type of teaching today is what's called the word of faith movement it's also known as the prosperity gospel how many of you are familiar with what the prosperity gospel is become familiar with it you're going to bump into it a lot, especially on late night TV. These teachers manipulate billions of dollars every year out of people who don't understand the gospel of God's grace. Some are blatant. I mean, they're right out in front of you. You send me a thousand. I saw a guy the other night 
on TV. I was just flipping through. And, it, you know, you send me your seed. You send me a seed of $1,000 and, and God will pay your mortgage off. You're talking about playing on vulnerable people. Billions and billions and billions of dollars travel through the telephone and now the Internet into the coffers of these false teachers. They're everywhere. Some are blatant like that. Others are stealthy. Joel Osteen. I'm sure there are Joel Osteen fans here. And I could give you a list of ten more that are considered legitimate teachers in the Christian world right now. Stealthy, word of faith, prosperity gospel preachers, no matter how good it looks on the outside, it will ultimately go to that place to ask you for your money. But they're teaching so good. Be careful, man. If it always goes to that place, I don't care how practical, how good, how wonderful they make you feel, they're false teachers. They all flow from the same tainted teaching. And that's the teaching that was going on in Crete. You've got to give something to God to get something from God. You hear me? If there's any teaching that, that you're confronted with that, that at, at, at the end of it all says, hey, you've got to give something to God in order to get something from God, it's false teaching. Do we reap what we sow? Yeah, we reap what we sow. That's a, that's a kingdom principle. But this always has to do with money. Always. Dishonest gain. And that's what Paul is talking about here. One of the champions of this teaching through the years is a healing evangelist who's very, very well known. His name is Benny Hinn. Anybody familiar with Benny Hinn? Been around for years. I mean, all over the television, huge ministry. Um, just last week, I don't know if any of you heard, Benny Hinn renounced the prosperity gospel. He's about to remove, he's about to move into his retirement years. Um, but I'm not going to diminish what he's doing here, honestly. He, he, he renounced the prosperity gospel and called it gimmickry for gain. And he's at the top of the heap. Gimmickry for gain. He said that the Holy Spirit had shown him through the Scripture over the past ten years that what he was doing and what others in the Word of Faith movement were doing was wrong. And that he finally wanted to come to a place of of, of of responding to that conviction. And and he came out and you know, all of that clan who stick together, boy, they're you know, they're coming against him, but he's rebuking them uh in the same way that uh that the Holy Spirit has rebuked him. Um, you know, I pray it's an authentic transformation and that, that God uses Benny Hinn to straighten out that mess that we have uh, is worldwide at this point. But I will be curious to see if he Returns, and I'm being honest, if he returns any of the fortune that he's made off of manipulating vulnerable people for 35, 40 years. His net worth right now is $60 million. 
He lives in a $7 million home off of Dana Point in California and owns a $20 million jet. Let's see if your behavior matches what you say you believe. And then how many people actually lost their homes because you told them if they sent you $1,000. Okay, so let's see if there's any, any giving back, if you will. I think that's the test for me. But it's fascinating, and I do believe God is, is continuing to shine His light uh, on this false teaching that so permeates uh, our culture today. And so from Crete in the first century to our culture right now, there is really nothing new under the sun, folks. This is, uh, this is just old false teaching in new clothes. Beware the leveraging of God's favor to manipulate your behavior in any way, shape, or form. Paul tells Titus to put his game face on. He said, get ready, man, there's going to be a fight. And he says, I want you to shut them down and I want you to run them out if they are unwilling to change. Share the truth in love. But if they're not willing to turn around, you've got to get them out of there. He goes on to tell Titus this, even one of their own prophets in Crete has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Paul says that prophet was Epimenides, uh, 600 B.C. prophet that, uh, that, that found Crete as his home. Another Greek historian by the name of Polybius described the Cretans this way. He said, money is so highly valued among them that its possession is not only thought to be necessary, but in the highest degree credible. Does that sound like any other culture you're aware of? And in fact, greed and avarice are so native to the soil in Crete that they are the only people in the world among whom no stigma attaches to any sort of gain whatsoever. In other words, they will do anything to make a buck. Now, with few exceptions, you could find no habits prevailing in private life more steeped in treachery than those in Crete. Tough audience for the gospel. It was that culture that had crept into the church in Crete. And it's, it's, it's that culture that creeps into our churches today if we're not careful. If we don't guard the gates. If we don't hold high the truth of Orthodox Christian doctrine. And so Paul tells Titus this. He said, rebuke them sharply. There's no time to play around. Rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention. Now he's speaking of the people in the church in this verse, not just the teachers. Rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the commands of those who reject the truth. So Titus is not only to rebuke the false teachers, but here Paul tells him, you need to rebuke the followers of this mess as well, reminding them that for those who are in Christ, verse 15, that the pure, to the pure, those who have stepped into the righteousness 
of Jesus Christ. He who had no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Pure. That's what happens when we by faith receive the forgiveness that Christ affords us on the cross. We repent of our sin. We step into Him. And as God receives us in Christ, we're pure. We're as pure as He is. And so that's what Paul is saying. To the pure, those who are in Christ, all things are pure. But to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In other words, it's all about Christ. The only way to get there, the only way to be accepted to God is in Christ. He says, in fact, both their minds and their consciences are corrupted. You can't follow enough rules. You can't perform well enough. You can't give enough money. You can't do anything to be accepted and reconciled to your Creator outside of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's about Jesus. That's it. And if anybody adds anything to that, Run. In my case, rebuke them. It's poison. We always want to see what we can do. What kind of value we can add. It's rampant in the church today too. What else can we do? What else can we add? What are they doing? Da, 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 da. Jesus. It's about Jesus. And Jesus alone. And as followers of Christ... Peter tells us that we have absolutely everything we need for life and godliness. If you're in Christ, you lack nothing. you got everything that you need for everything that God wants. Our behavior does not dictate God's favor. The cross determined that once and for all. And the thing of it is, you know... Paul said at one point, when we try to, when we try to do more and do more and do more to, to, to earn God's favor, he said, man, you're just nailing Jesus to the cross all over again. He said, do you think if you could earn God's favor that way that he would have had to do that? It's an affront to God when we do it. But boy, it makes us feel good. Had a good day, man, God loves me. I say again, God loves you just as much on your worst day as He does on your best day. It's not about wins and losses. We've already won in Him. It's about Jesus and Jesus alone. Beware of those who teach otherwise. Let's pray. Father, we are so wired to win your favor. (laughs) We're so wired to perform to compare ourselves to others, to try to measure up. Lord, it is the sickness of the human race. 
And it's so hard for us just to rest and to receive that which You're offering us in Christ. To accept His death, burial, and resurrection for the forgiveness of our sin to be reconciled to You. That's all there is to it, Lord. Acknowledging our sin. Acknowledging that we fall short of Your glory. Recognizing that Jesus measures up to every standard You've ever set. And acknowledging that on that cross He died once and for all. And He said, It is finished. Lord, help us to be a discerning church. Help us to recognize the the subtlety of false teaching that can easily slip in, that calls us to add something, anything, to what Jesus has already done on our behalf. Lord, I know that some of us here this morning needed to hear that. And Father, I, I need to hear it time and time and time again. We tend as human beings to just slip back into that mentality. Lord, I pray that You would keep us on a short leash through the power of Your Holy Spirit that resides within us to fix our eyes on Jesus and Jesus only, the author and the perfecter of our faith, and to not try to add anything to what He's already done on our behalf and to step forward into the freedom it brings. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.